A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. It's just a windy day, but you know, can we go to Briggs Cove finally? Would you be up for hiking up over the hill with me and showing me the graves? So mom, wait a damn bottom. It's mid-October 2023 and an overcast and chilly day in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. I'm walking with my distant relative, Jenny Brake. We met just a few weeks ago for the first time. We're down at Brakes Cove, the very place where our common ancestors, Ralph and Jane, made their home and started their family. Jenny's the same age as me, and like me, grew up white. But in her case, she remembers that there were always little hints. It was always in the air of my family. There was a joke that was always brought up that Pop was an Indian chief. And there was, you know, jokes about the dark skin. And there was jokes about, oh, when he has a drink, the dirty Indian comes out of him. Like things like a lot of derogatory things that, you know, I look back on now. But I was always really confused by it and why it was always directed at my family. And so as a youngster, I knew that these things were being said because this was a part of my family's history or my family's life. I even wondered like, well, was Pop an Indian chief? And like, As you heard before, I initially embraced the new idea that I was Mi'kmaq and applied for Indian status, in part because I thought that it seemed really cool that I had this connection to indigenous people I didn't know about. Jenny had a more pragmatic motivation. I became pregnant with my son and my dad wanted me to have access to education and he was really scared that I was going to become another, you know, single mom that couldn't afford opportunities to advance in life and things like that. So he said, I want you to go talk to the Federation of Newfoundland Indians. I think they have help for education. You need to provide for this child. I'm Justin Brake and this is the third and final chapter of The Newfoundlander.
When people think of Newfoundland, they think fishing, British and Irish-influenced local dialects, the thousand-year-old site at Lawsa Meadows where the Vikings once lived. Maybe these days they think of that musical, Come From Away. Or they think of getting screeched in, the weird custom for becoming an honorary Newfoundlander, kissing a codfish, downing a shot of screech rum, and saying, long may your big jib draw, while Great Big Sea plays in the background. What people don't think about is the rich and ancient Indigenous history here. The archaeological record shows Indigenous peoples have been here at least 6,000 years, long before the Vikings, long before Italian explorer John Cabot quote-unquote discovered the so-called newfound land, and long before Portuguese, Spanish, French, and British merchants began taking fish from the North Atlantic waters here. Throughout the 1500s, Europeans settled eastern parts of the island. At that time, an indigenous people called the Beothic were the only confirmed permanent residents here. To some unknown extent, they shared the island with Mi'kmaq, who came here seasonally from what's now known as Nova Scotia. It's an uncontroversial historical fact that there was intermarriage and integration. Settler men married Mi'kmaq women. In some cases, Mi'kmaq men married white women. In an island population like ours, some degree of Indigenous ancestry became common among families who remained, in appearance, culture, and status, white. And that's how they lived, generation after generation. Until now. As I told you in our last episode, over 100,000 Newfoundlanders and people with connections to Newfoundland recently applied for membership in the newly formed Halibu Mi'kmaq First Nation. If approved, they'd secure Indian status with the federal government and become the biggest First Nation in Canada, by far. They would have all the perks that come with a status card, tax exemptions, access to funding, housing and education programs, a basket of benefits with none of the violence the Indian Act heaped upon First Nations peoples across Canada. No legacy of residential school abuse, no families broken by forced adoptions, no being followed by supermarket security guards for looking native. Everyone knows that we have people who have falsified their documents. That's what former Flat Bay Indian Band Chief Liz Lasega said in 2018. So when you have a status card, you need to be able to know why, what it is about your background, your ancestors, your parents, what it is about the movement, why the government owes you that card. And if you don't know, I would suggest don't use it until you learn. I was the reporter who Chief Lasaga said that to for a story I did for the Aboriginal People's Television Network. But I was also one of the people she was addressing. On our last episode, I told you how, after I received my Indian status, I immersed myself in Mi'kmaq culture. Years later, I even took a job at the Aboriginal People's Television Network, covering Indigenous stories. I thought I was being careful about how I presented myself publicly. I said that I was a Newfoundlander of French, British, Irish, and Mi'kmaq descent. But then I got called out in a very public way. On Christmas Eve 2017, weeks after I joined the Aboriginal People's Television Network, 
an Anishinaabe academic I knew from Memorial University named Benessi Morisot questioned me publicly on Twitter. The post has since been deleted, but it was something like, Hey Justin, are you Indigenous? I don't recall you identifying as Indigenous when we last spoke. This was followed by another message from Inuk filmmaker Alethea Arnacook Burrell. She said that if I was going to tell Indigenous people's stories, I owed my readers transparency about who I am. Looking back on it now, these are perfectly reasonable questions and comments. But at the time, I felt attacked. It felt like a pile-on, like a public shaming. The experience shook me. I had not yet made sense of my own situation. What I haven't told you yet is that my family story is not just about me and a handful of relatives. For one thing, the Brake family tree spreads wide across Newfoundland and Labrador. Our family Facebook page alone has 947 members, but there are thousands of us. And then there's my dad. My father and I are estranged, and sometimes it feels like we couldn't be more different. But something we have in common is the fact that for both of us, this new issue of Indigenous identity became a focal point in our lives. You see, my father, a retired Mountie, worked with the Halibut Band to pressure the feds into reinstating Indian status for hundreds of veterans and police officers. They had no choice but to leave Newfoundland because their jobs required them to. During the application process, not being in Newfoundland was a strike against applicants and caused many to lose their status. And he was successful, at least to the degree that he ensured his own Indian status. But as a result, as I'd later learn from the Halibut chief himself, I may also soon have my Indian status reinstated, which I deliberately chose not to do, quote-unquote, whether I like it or not. What is this, sorry? Uh, bellows. That's for, you oak it up, right, for the foraging, right? That's the original staircase to this house. And you see the walls were all done with pine. Wow. And what year was this, the house originally built? 1860s. 1860s, okay. Yeah. I'm getting a tour of the old Brake House Museum in the small community of Meadows, Newfoundland. It's owned and operated by one Weldon Brake. I've never met him before, but it can be assumed he's a distant relative. All Brakes here come from the same family of three British brothers who came to the so-called New World. Now, there's a will. I don't know if you've seen it. It's online mm-hmm. where you get all of Ralph's and Edward's crowd that specifically tells who's who, right? But they all go back to the same Brakes. So we are definitely related, right? My Brake brother ancestor was Ralph Brake, born in 1760 in Dorset, England. He married one Jane Matthews, about whom far, far less is known. Who was Jane Matthews? A lot rests on the answer to that question. As you heard last episode, an 1871 historical account described Jane Matthews as a squaw, but it was written 52 years after her death. There are two other historical accounts of my ancestors by Europeans. 
There's also Newfoundland census records from 1921 that identify the descendants of Ralph Brake and Jane Matthews as Indian. All of these pieces of documentation form a significant basis for my family's claim to indigeneity. We all descend from Jane Matthews. So they took the maiden name. All the sons took the maiden name. This episode is brought to you by the University of King's College in downtown Halifax. I know King's. I have gone to King's to speak. It's a great school. It's a school that is known for its humanities and journalism programs. It is renowned for its foundation year program, a unique approach to first-year university. This is a school where the ratio of students to teachers is like 15 to 1. So you're actually engaging with professors about great books and foundational ideas about everything. Literature, history, philosophy, you know, that stuff. If you know a student who is looking for an exceptional beginning and future, let them know to visit ukings.ca slash CanadaLand, and they can download a free University Viewbook and check out the undergrad and graduate programs offered. That is ukings.ca slash CanadaLand. Dorothy Stewart is an anthropology researcher. Her research with Marlene Companion, who's also a descendant of Ralph Brake and Jane Matthews, was commissioned by the Federation of Newfoundland Indians and the federal government in the late 1990s. As she describes, their goal was to find historical evidence to support the Halibu claim. When we mm-hmm. started this research with the, with the federal government, the objective from them, then Indian Affairs, was find something, some documentary source that identifies someone by name and as Mi'kmaq. For me, with the breaks, the reason that I never did that much work on the genealogy of the breaks was that that was already there. The words that clearly showed, you know, that had the name Ralph Brake, his wife Jane, and she was also referred to as Jane Matthews, their kids by name, uh, or at least some of their kids by name, and that they were half Mi'kmaq. For us at that time, that was job done. Then it's up to the descendants to say, this is how I'm descended from Ralph and Jane Brake. That's actually how the enrollment process worked for me. Once it was proven that my grandfather Edward Brake was Mi'kmaq, even though he didn't self-identify, his children and grandchildren were given status. I think the final big research project was prove a sense of community, prove the existence of bands. We interpreted band in the sense of community and looking at all the factors that go into making a shared community and a shared identity. So that was in the 90s that that was the focus. So what we were asked to prove changed depending on who the minister was and what they felt like doing at that particular moment. What is a First Nations band? Stuart and Companion interpret it to simply mean community. 
That, plus a Mi'kmaq ancestor, was good enough for the federal government of Canada. But how is that something for Canada to decide? According to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, Indigenous peoples have the right to determine their own identity or membership in accordance with their customs and traditions. Professor Kim Talbert of the University of Alberta holds the first Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples, Technoscience, and Environment. She's published papers on DNA testing, race science, and Indigenous identity. I asked her a question related to my own experience. Having discovered the possibility that I may have some degree of Indigenous ancestry, why shouldn't I reconsider my identity? Her response changes my thinking completely. For me, the problem with the word identity is that it seems to refer to individual property, my individual property that's contained within my own body, my own individual identity. It's very individualistic. And what we're talking about when we're talking about tribal or First Nation or other Indigenous belonging is we're talking about belonging to a collective. We're talking about a collective who tells us who we are and how we belong. It's a set of relations. So it's anti-relational when we talk about identity. And this is what settlers want you to do. The settler state wants you to think in terms of individual self-actualization, identity, property, and rights. So this is why I encourage people to think more in terms of who are you trying to relate to. You need these sets of relations to constitute a people. You don't constitute a people simply out of individuals claiming to have an ancestor. You know, 19, 15, 3, or even 2 generations ago. That is not a people. That is just ancestry. If a mail-order saliva test reveals to you that you have 11% Italian DNA, that doesn't make you Italian. You can study the history, you can learn the language, you can travel the country and eat nothing but pasta. You can even embark on a personal journey that leaves you feeling Italian in your very soul. But you're still not Italian. It is possible to become Italian, of course, but that would be up to Italians, not to you. That's what the Mi'kmaq Grand Council first said when the Canadian government recognized Halibu as a Mi'kmaq First Nation. Only Mi'kmaq can determine who is eligible to be a Mi'kmaq they wrote in a 2013 letter to the UN, and that the government of Canada has violated our right to do so. These new Halibu members, we simply do not know and do not recognize as Mi'kmaq. But then, a few years ago, the Mi'kmaq Grand Council seemed to suddenly reverse its position. Their new Grand Chief, Norman Silliboy, traveled with other council members to Newfoundland to meet with Halibu leaders. In a press release from Halibu, a member of Chief Silliboy's council said, We were happy to visit and meet some of our relations, visit communities, and acknowledge our extended Mi'kmaq family. Unity is the Mi'kmaq way. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity. 
and they are doing cutting edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars And I I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. I'm in Burgio on Newfoundland's south coast at a Mauiomi, a Mi'kmaq gathering. And here I get a chance to speak with Halibut Chief Brendan Mitchell about this in depth. Mitchell looks like what he is, a middle-aged man with a business degree named Brendan Mitchell. Like me and the rest of his band council, he is white passing. We find a quiet spot away from the music and sit down at a picnic table. I want to know about that visit from Grand Chief Silliboy and others. Was the Mi'kmaq Grand Council suddenly comfortable with the way Halibut came into being and with the thousands of newly self-identified Mi'kmaq? Absolutely. You know, one of my roles as Chief of Halibut First Nation, as today as the Interim Regional Chief for Newfoundland at the Silliboy First Nation, I'm an ambassador. <laughs> Those people in accepting me I'm a pretty white-looking guy, as you can appreciate. I'm not a, a dark person. They accept me, and they accept our communities because they accept me. And and I, I think that's, that's the way it's happening right now. There's a greater acceptance of who the Mi'kmaq people of Newfoundland are, and I don't think people are as concerned or as upset or maybe want to discriminate against us because maybe we're... You know, not looking like the typical indigenous person in Canada. And uh, and they kind of understand that Halibut was a, a new group. I explained to them what happened in 1949, the 50-year struggle for recognition. I don't think anybody was anticipating the kinds of numbers that we, we see, that we've seen in terms of this enrollment process. But I think by and large, people across the country right now are getting used to Halibut First Nation, and they know about our size and who we are. When I sit at the Assembly of First Nations Executive Committee, there's nobody discriminating or looking at me with, with any sense of, uh, of concern. 
I asked Mitchell about the most controversial applicants to Halibut, those who seemed to discover and claim Indigenous identity overnight. So who am I to say who's who? You tell me you're Mi'kmaq. I don't know much about your family. I know your father. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you're saying you're Mi'kmaq? I'm not going to argue that. Yeah, I don't identify as Mi'kmaq, though. But are you? No. I have Mi'kmaq ancestry, but I don't think that means being Mi'kmaq. I mean, I have a great-great-grandparent who was part Mi'kmaq, and I'm here in Burgio trying to trace a great-great-great-great-great-grandparent who myself and probably thousands of others used in their applications yeah. to claim to be Mi'kmaq okay. today. The but Supreme but Court your, and the your own father, dis- though, identifies as being Mi'kmaq. That I mean, that's was, pretty close to your bloodline, for sure. Yeah, but that was but after I'm not I going moved to argue, away from home. We never I'm not th- going to argue with him mm-hmm. about if he's Mi'kmaq. He is Mi'kmaq to me. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I know where he comes from. What he means is he knows that we breaks come from Jane Matthews. It's not the slam dunk he thinks it is. There's a story in my family that Ralph Brake came to Newfoundland as an enslaved teenager, that he jumped ship, was rescued and adopted by quote-unquote Indians, and then later was permitted to marry Jane Matthews, the daughter of a chief. But when I spoke to another community leader, Bernard Benoit, who helped found the non-status Burgio Indian band, he told me a totally different story about Jane Matthews. He says he heard this story from a community member. He doesn't remember exactly who, but it's a story that's circulating within the community. In the early years, back in the probably earlier 1700s, there used to be a Captain Matthews. He was an English captain who had his own schooner, an entrepreneur who used to come over to Newfoundland and travel around to various rivers seeking the Mi'kmaq people and sitting up open to buy furs from them. He was making a lot of money at this. And that caught the ear of a young man in England named Ralph Brake. Ralph was interested in making money like old Captain Matthews. Now, old Captain Matthews liked making more than money. He also liked Indian women, apparently, because... He created a daughter or two in Grandy's Brook by one Indian woman. And down the road, Ralph Brake did get to come to Newfoundland with old Captain Matthews. And he met Captain Matthews' daughter that he had by the Indian woman at Grandy's Brook, Jane Matthews, and he married her. Half Indian, of course, uh, with Captain Matthews being a father. And they left the south coast and moved to the west coast. And they set up base in the Umber River. It's my understanding they had a very large family, upwards of eight or nine sons. And over the course of their lifetime, they claimed that the Humber River was theirs. For the thousands of Newfoundlanders who rely on Jane Matthews' indigeneity as the basis for their claims, this is a major plot twist. In Bernard's version, Jane was not the daughter of a Mi'kmaq chief. She was the half-indigenous daughter of a British sea captain. But really, who even knows? These are all just a bunch of contradictory stories about a woman who died hundreds of years ago. Here I am again with Brendan Mitchell. I don't know. There's, we don't, don't know there's very no, little about there's, her. There's actually no proof that she was Mi'kmaq. 
Okay. She was referred to in historical documentation by a few white people like Jukes and Howley sure as having an Indian kid or an, and like like that's. But when you say uh, when you say though, uh, there's no proof. I'll say to you, prove to me that she's not. Where is that proof that but, she's not Mi'kmaq? But if that's what we're basing how we decide who's indigenous and who's not in Canada, that's pretty loose, and we could probably have millions more indigenous people. Lots maybe, of pe maybe lots of we, people maybe have we a, can, you know. <laughs> lots of people have a dis distant this is indigenous a time, ancestor. This is a time in this country for truth and reconciliation, mm -hmm. and I can define reconciliation for you pretty quickly: is the acceptance of what happened in the past and is still happening. Mm -hmm. Let's call it truth. Having a willingness for atonement, but here's the key piece moving forward in the spirit of mutual respect and positive change. Mm -hmm. And this is what we need in this country with respect to consideration, treatment, and acknowledgement of indigenous people. Mm -hmm. So again, I'll finish by saying, I don't measure Mi'kmaq by degree. So how does he measure it? Well, you heard him. You say you're Mi'kmaq, he's not going to argue with you. I decided almost a decade ago that I could not in good conscience start calling myself Indigenous. Identity is not just about who I think I am, it's about who will have me and where I come from. It's about your community, and it's as clear to me now as when I was a child. I'm a break, and I'm a Newfoundlander. But here's the thing, while I was figuring all of this out, the breaks changed. Newfoundland changed. The population of Newfoundland and Labrador is about 500,000 people. Over 100,000 Newfoundlanders and former Newfoundlanders have applied for membership in the Halibut First Nation. So while I consider myself a Newfoundlander and not an Indigenous person, a large number of people here consider themselves Indigenous. And that includes most of my family. A retreat from my search for Indigenous roots means a return to family. What if they're not where I left them? I invited a couple family members to join me in the podcast, but they declined or never responded. Which brings us back to my walk along Brakes Cove with my distant cousin Jenny, who you heard at the start of this episode. She first looked into joining the Federation of Newfoundland Indians when her father suggested it as a way of providing for her child. She's one of the only breaks who will speak with me about this right now. And she's found peace with it all. A peace that I just can't seem to reach. So it wasn't until I got, it was probably I was 20 years old, I guess, when it was like put in front of me in paper and explained to me, you know, my dad, he's a big history buff. So he's always digging and like, so I'm, I'm sure his knowledge went further back than that. But uh, if that's when it was like, so like I said, I think I said to you before, I found the puzzle piece under the couch and popped it in. It was like, oh, okay, this all makes sense now. When Jenny first dug into her ancestry, it didn't open up a mystery for her. It solved one. She remembers when her dad first encouraged her to learn more. So he said, I want you to go talk to the Federation of Newfoundland Indians. So then I went to talk to them and, you know, they were like, 
they were so excited to see me and they were like, oh my God, I'm trying to talk to your dad. And like, we've shown me all these wills and testaments and like all these documents that have me so excited. And so like, I felt like I got a piece of the puzzle that had just been like always a mystery to me. Like I always heard the air of it and I always, and the jokes, like they were hurtful. I, I was called a squat at times, stuff like that, that you would hear, not all the time, but and people threw those words around in the eighties. Now I was still not comfortable with just outright saying I'm indigenous. Even like when I said my friends from school found out that I was uh, receiving funds from the FNI for school, like I was still really struggling with like, what does that mean for me? And what does that mean for my identity and how I present myself? Mm-hmm. And I was still trying to find all the answers. I remember it being like 10 years of just trying to find somebody to talk to about my indigeneity. Like I didn't see a reflection of myself. And today, Jenny Brake is vice chief of Halibu First Nation. It was the connection of my role there that allowed me access to elders and access to other Indigenous groups and other teachings and ceremony and all the things that I was desperately seeking. Mm -hmm. So I've just carried on through that and then coming back to run as vice chief was just my way of saying, like, there looks like a lot of things that we need to fix and I'd like to be able to try to help. Mm -hmm. How do we have that conversation without it creating more division, hurting people, like... It, conversations shouldn't create division. Because my truth is not your truth and your truth is not my truth. So we can't persecute one another for what we feel. These are our feelings and our opinions. Yeah. So I think like being open-minded and trying to navigate through a conversation, understanding that we may not agree at the end of it, mm-hmm. but we don't need to hate each other for that. Yeah, we, can, yeah. we can respect each other at the end of that. Because mm-hmm. every like hurt people hurt people. So when you're frustrated mm-hmm. and you're hurt, and, and a lot of folks here in Newfoundland that are in this conversation of Hollywood and, and Mi'kmaq identity, they're hurt. Mm-hmm. So, you know, their words can come out in a really hurtful way, mm-hmm. but hurt people hurt people. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, showing empathy and, and patience and maybe just trying to redirect conversations in a way that we can be a little less uh, hostile toward one another, I think is the best we can do. What's the best I can do? I love my family and I care about them deeply. But there are family events that I just don't go to anymore. I feel alone in my response to all this. All the confusion over my family's history. I feel isolated and even wanting to talk about this. I wish there were better relations in my family and in our communities. But for me... Those relations can't be founded on lies, or even embellishments of truth. I don't believe my pop ever intended to hurt anyone with his story of being a Holocaust survivor. Nor do I think anyone today is intending to hurt anyone else by self-identifying as Mi'kmaq. But as we saw with my pop's story, stories take on lives of their own. It's easy to lose control of the narrative. And then your own story of who you are can shift under your feet. I've done my best to find out what's true about who I really am. But the very act of finding and sharing those facts has distanced me from the people I come from. Some of them may never speak to me again. But I have kids, and they deserve to know how they ended up where they are and who they are. And maybe to find out what lies beneath. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The Newfoundlander was reported and written by me, Justin Brake. The series was produced by Jesse Brown, Bruce Thorson, and Tristan Capacchione. Editorial contributions by Sarah Lorniak. Canada Land's managing editor is Annette Egiofo. Editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Some music in this episode is from Emile Benoit's album, Emile's Dream. A very special thanks to Kelly Russell and Pigeon Inlet Productions for sharing Emile's music with us. Please become a Canada Land supporter. Go to canadaland.com join or click the link in the show notes. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Prime. 